Well, good morning once again. I welcome you to worship in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my earnest prayer and my goal this morning that as we look and finish Malachi chapter 1, that our affection for God, that is our response to Him, our desire for Him, our longing for Him would increase because of what we see in this text. God has, as we are going to see this morning, created us to worship Him. And so as we come and submit ourselves to His Word, as we come and sing and hear and read and preach and worship together, our goal ought to be not only to know things about God, but to have that knowledge change our heart and our affections for Him. So I am praying this morning that my own heart would be on fire with passion for the Lord, and I want the same thing for you. And that is my goal, and I pray that that is what happens. So we are going to finish Malachi chapter 1. We started the Minor Prophets in September, and we're working our way through. So we come this morning to the last section in the first chapter of Malachi. And I want to ask a question as we open. Has anyone ever heard the phrase, what's in a name? You heard that? You heard that? Good. One of you. That's great. Shakespeare used this in Romeo and Juliet, right? When Juliet is talking to Romeo and she's making the point that his name doesn't matter. She loves him regardless of if he's a Capulet or a Montague or whatever the case may be. It's just a name. What's in a name? I love you either way. Well, contrary to old Bill Shakespeare, the Bible tells us a very different story that names have tremendous significance. It means something. And we see this all throughout the Old and the New Testament, that names are a means of association. That's the point that I'm making as we begin. Names are a means of association. When you hear a name, you automatically associate that with something, a time, a place, a character, uh, an emotion, a, a memory, something like that. So let me just do a couple examples here. We do this with brand names. Okay, so if I were to say to you, Taco Bell, you would probably think of a dark time in your past. <laughs> but we do the same thing with locations, right? With, with saying, if I were to say to you, Gettysburg, okay, most of us would think uh, Civil War, General Grant, Lee, we make associations with that. Well, personal names are the same way. When we hear a name, you associate that with something, someone, a history, a memory. So then here's my question. What do you think of when you hear the name of God? What is the association in your mind when you hear the Lord's name? What comes to mind? What fills your thoughts? What do you start to picture or think of when you hear God's name? What we are going to see in Malachi chapter 1 this morning is that God's desire is that his name be known globally, that is, worldwide. And it's no accident that we sang songs this morning of God's universal kingship, his lordship over all the world because that is what he is and that's what he wants his people to know, that he is a great king. And he is worthy of all honor 
and worship and glory and reverence. And this was the big problem in Malachi, that the people had forgotten this about God. They did not associate God with greatness. They associated him with duty and ritual and blah. And that was a problem. So, open your Bibles. Let's start by reading Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 8, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, so if you hit Matthew, just back up one book and you'll be there. So Malachi chapter 1, follow along as I read, starting in verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept that or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious with us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I do not find or accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Lord God, we come before you as your creation. And we want to publicly recognize that you are a great king. Your works among the children of men, the track record of your faithfulness, your demonstrations of love and power towards your people are unmistakable. And so, Lord, we come and we humbly submit that we do not love you as we should, we do not bring you the best as we should, and we ask for forgiveness. And pray now, God, as we see this example from the prophet Malachi of your requirement in worship, what you desire from your people, would you change our hearts? This is not about externals. This is not about the way things appear. It is about the posture of our hearts as we relate to you, our Father, our Maker, our Redeemer, our King. So God, please, come and do this work that only you can do Don't let your word return void, but accomplish all of your purposes this morning. And would you do this for the glory of your name, for the global recognition of your kingship. And may it start right here at Grace. And we give you thanks, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we finish up chapter 1 this morning... 
I'm going to use verse 11 as a sort of thesis statement. That is a main summary of what this section says. This section being what we just read, 8 to 14. And I think that in this section, God's desire to be known and glorified is the main point. And of course, we're going to see how the people have messed up the sacrificial system, how they have neglected to do what they should have done. But the main purpose is not so much how the people are affected, but how the reputation of God is affected. How his global fame and glory and honor are nullified, in a sense, by the coldness of his people's hearts. And so we're going to use this text in 111 specifically as our launching point to see what God is communicating to the people. Now, the problem is, is that the people, as we said last week, had lost sight of who God really was. They did not have a right view of God. And we said last week that we must, as the people of God, have a right understanding of who God is before we can see anything else rightly. Do you remember that? So the first and primary thing is that God's people understand who he is, who he's revealed himself to be, what his word communicates about him. And I think perhaps more than any other place in the Old Testament, the section of Isaiah 40 to 50 is one of the clearest demonstrations of God's power and majesty and worth and his desire to be known in all the world. And I'm going to reference a few texts here because I want us to understand the severity of the situation we find in Malachi 1. This is no small thing for God's people to think lightly of him. It says in Isaiah 42 that God wants to bring his sons from afar, his daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone that he created for his glory. And then there's this purpose statement for humanity. Why do you exist? To glorify God. To recognize his kingship, his lordship over your life, and to honor him for that. Listen to how God describes himself. And I, I cite these texts so that you can see clearly God's purpose in what he does in his dealings with his people. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another. That's pretty exclusive language about God, isn't it? There's no room in that text to say, well, God is one of the gods or God is among the deities of the earth. No, he is separate. He is above, he is over, he is the great king and he ought to be worshipped as a great king. Isaiah 45 in verse 4, I call you by name, I name you. See, remember we talked about the significance of names? I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't even know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. 
This is the picture of God that the people in Malachi 1 had forgotten. Or they had just chosen not to accept. The strong, mighty, victorious Lord of hosts was their God. And as a response to this, they ought to have brought in him the best that they had in their worship. The best that they had in sacrifice as a reflection of his value and his worth. But they didn't. They treated him as something lesser. And this is what incurred God's anger against them. And like I said, I want you to understand that when the people bring a substandard offering to God, when they do not respond in the way they ought to, it is serious. Not only of because how it affects the people, but because of what it says about their God. And so as we get into this text today, we are going to see that God is worthy of worship and honor and praise, and yet the people disregarded him. They despised his altar. They treated it as an insignificant thing. And this is the problem. So read Malachi 1.11 again. Now remember, this is my thesis statement because I think it's the thesis of the whole section. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations says the Lord of hosts. You see how many times name is mentioned just in that one verse? Three times? Now remember in this context God's name is not just his title. Okay, this is not just what the people call him. It encompasses his character, his works, his reputation. So when he says, my name will be great, he doesn't just mean that people will call him the right thing. He means that his works, the manifestation of his power and his divine glory and his worth will be displayed for all of the world to see. He wants his reputation to be great among all the world, and this is encompassed in this name term. And one of the primary ways that God displays his worth and his value and his glory to the nations is through his dealings with his people. How many times in the Old Testament do we read of a situation where God delivers his people, he defeats their enemies, he provides miraculously for them. He extends grace and mercy to them and he says explicitly that he did this so that the nations, the peoples of the world would understand that he is the only God. I am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no other. But the way that his people were approaching him in worship when they were bringing him what is lame and blind and stolen or taken by violence, that did not communicate the greatness of God to the people. Do you you see that connection? That if God is so wonderful, if he is so powerful, if he is worth so much, then why aren't the people bringing him their best? And this was the issue. That the reputation of God is at stake. And I think this also helps us to understand what verse 8 says. Look at verse 8 again. God says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, isn't that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Now we might think it's wrong. 
right? It's wrong for them to offer substandard sacrifices, but would we call it evil? Would we say that it is evil for them to offer a blemished goat in sacrifice? Well, God does, and this is why he does. There's a couple of layers here. First of all, it was evil to bring these sacrifices Yes, because of the worth of God, and the people should have reflected that worth in their sacrifice, but you remember, last week we looked at Deuteronomy 15, and we saw that God had explicitly commanded his people to bring the best that they had in worship to him. From the beginning, the whole sacrificial system was set up so that the people were required to bring the very best of what they had as a reflection of their heart and as a reflection of who God was, or who he ought to have been to them. And of course, all of that is paving the way for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ, who would come to be the perfect sacrifice. But from the beginning, God had said, you have to bring unblemished, spotless, perfect sacrifices, firstborn, not the old lame cow that you had out to pastor because it's no good for anything else anymore, bring the best. And so when God's people willfully and intentionally ignore his command and bring a lesser sacrifice, that is disobedience to the revealed will of God. Another word for that is sin, and sin is evil. So when God says these sacrifices are evil, that's what he's getting at. But more than just the external thing and the breaking of God's commandment, it was showing the posture of the people's hearts. It was showing what was going on inside of them that precipitated this kind of attitude towards the sacrifices. They didn't treasure God. They didn't value Him as they should have. They could care less if they gave Him the best. In fact, they wanted to keep the best for themselves. And God says, that's evil. That's not just wrong. That's not just frowned upon. That's not just some kind of, oh, you should really try to do better. That is sin for God's people to know what to do and to willingly choose to reject that. And if God's name, if his reputation, if his works are going to be made known among the nations, then the people are going to have to bring a pure sacrifice. Look at verse 11. Look at some of the language that's used in there. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Now, why would someone bring a pure offering? Because they understood who they were offering it to. You're starting to see how this is all building together? A right understanding of God means that you bring your best to him because he is worthy of it. If they knew what Isaiah knew, some of these texts that we just read, if they could look back in their history and remember that God is a great king, they would have brought better sacrifices, but they didn't have a right understanding of who God was. They did not understand or they willingly chose to reject the knowledge that God was their great king. And as a result, God rejected their sacrifices. Look at verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now when the people hear this, and God comes to them through the prophet Malachi, he's addressing the priests and the people who are gathered together, and he says, I am displeased with the way that you are approaching me in worship. I will not accept this. How do they respond? 
Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You have no idea how long I've been waiting to preach on the word snort. It's finally here, praise God. But God, Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the King of nations, the Redeemer of the nation of Israel, communicates to the people that you're missing the point. Your sacrifices stink. Your hearts are far from me. And the people respond by going, oh my word. This again? That's what's being communicated here. It's indignation. It's kind of like a teenager who's just like, oh, quit telling me the same thing over and over and over again. That is what's going on right here. The people are acting like spoiled brats. And God comes to them and says, clean it up. You're missing the point. I don't have pleasure in you. I don't accept your sacrifices. And they go, oh, tell us something we don't know. That's evil. And that is what is riling the Lord up because his people have forgotten who he was. They heard the message of God from Malachi and they, what are you talking about? It's not what we do. Well, that's exactly what they were doing. And that's why God is angry. You see, the priests and the people, they didn't see any reason to change anything. Now, if God were only concerned with the external things, they would have been fine, right? There was no reason for a rebuke here if all God cared about were the externals. They were bringing sacrifices. I mean, technically, they were doing what they should have done, right? They were bringing animals and sacrificing them in the temple, and everything should have been good, except it's not about the external things. Sure, those are important. They communicate something. But the problem here is that the people's hearts were far from God. Therefore, their offerings couldn't please him. And I want you to think about that little sentence I just said. The people's hearts were far from God. Therefore, their sacrifices didn't please him. Think about that for your own life. We'll talk about this a little bit when we close. If your heart is not close with the Lord, if you are simply externally going through the motion, coming to church, putting a face on, acting like you're just great all the time, but inside your heart is cold, God has no pleasure in you. And that's frightening. He wants your affections. That's why I said at the beginning, I, I so desire that God would work through his words so that our affections, not, not just the external things, not just, well, I can quote this verse, or I memorized the chapter, or I did whatever. Great! How does it affect your heart? Because if all you do is the right thing externally, God wants more than that. He wants a pure offering. He wants your heart, and he wants it wholly his which we need help with. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. Now look at verse 14 as we come to the end of this chapter. Cursed is the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now Malachi is the only one of the 12 minor prophets to use and invoke the curse language explicitly. In his writing, and in the ancient Near East, for a man 
to pronounce a curse on someone else, for them to say, I curse you, was like the most weighty, serious, heavily implicated thing that they could have ever said. It was so, so serious. Let alone when the Lord of hosts says, Cursed be the one who continues in this way, who promises me one thing with his mouth, but then when it comes to the practice of it, doesn't follow through. This is very, very strong language in verse 14. And understand that God is still operating within covenantal terms, right? The curse is a result of disobedience. It's not that God loses his temper. He doesn't fly off the handle and just get suddenly infuriated and the first one he sees is like, curse you! That's not what's happening. He is operating in the terms of the covenant, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. And so, the people know what they should have been doing. They know what the right thing to do was. The priests ought to have instructed them in the right temple worship, but they didn't. Well, sure, they said it with their mouth. So if you stand before the priest and the priest says, okay, this is what you ought to do. You bring your firstborn. You bring, you said, yep, I vow to do that. Praise God, I'm going to do that. But then when it comes right down to it, you go, ah. Oh. We're a little short this month, and it would really be nice if I could sell that animal at market and get a little bit more money. So I think I'll give God the, go get Bruno in the corner, we'll bring him into the sacrifice. That's evil. That is the breaking of a vow, and that's what's getting God riled up here. The thing that brings about the curse is the breaking of a vow. You see that in verse 14? The people had pledged to do one thing, but then it comes right down to it, and they say, "Mm, no, I think we know better. We're going to do this instead. And God says, I'm not going to put up with that. You know my desire. You know my will. I've given you what you need to do this. And they didn't. And they did not follow through. Now right in the middle of verse 14, we see a really important word. It is the word for, F-O-R. It could also be translated as because. God will follow through with covenant curses on those who despise his altar, who fail to perform what they have vowed because he is a great king and he is worthy of so much more. And here again in verse 14, we see the connection between the way that God's people worship him, what they do, and God's global display of power and glory and might. Right? Do you see that in verse 14? God is exercised, he's bringing about covenant curses because he is a great king and he deserves more and his name is ought to be just proclaimed in all the world. The one who does not do this is going to face covenant consequences for their actions. Now here's the connection I want to make. I want you to notice something in this last part of the verse. Look at the verb tenses. You didn't think you were going to get a little English lesson, but it's going to be really helpful. In the last part of verse 14, God says, I am. Present tense, right now, I am a great king. You see that? Look, look in the text so you don't, don't trust me, trust the Bible. God says, I am a great king. And then he says, my name will be feared among the nations. Why doesn't he say my name is? Why aren't both of those present tense? Because one isn't happening yet, right? That's kind of obvious. God is a great king. Right now, I am the great king, but my name will be feared. So what has to happen 
to change the tense of that verb? What needs to happen so that the name of God is, right now, among the people, feared? Well, the people have despised the altar of God. They've neglected his commands. They have cheated God out of what is rightfully his. And when the nations surrounding Israel, when they looked at the the temple sacrifice, which is very public, by the way, when they observed this, they didn't see the greatness of God. How could God be great among the people when they're just kind of treating it like, no, brother, this is such a burden. Grab that, let's go sacrifice. That communicates something about God. So God is saying, look, I am a great king. You remember in verse 6 when God asks these rhetorical questions? Where is my honor? Where is my fear? Well, those questions are answered right here in verse 14. God is honored because he is a great king. And he ought to be feared because of who he is. And who he has declared himself to be. But they didn't see the greatness of God. They didn't see the greatness of God at all. They saw a God like any other God of the nations because the people did not honor him. Sure, they honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So what's at stake here in verse 11 and again in verse 14 is the connection between the worship of God's people and the global display, the public display of who he is. If God was a great king, If he was really so powerful, if he had done all of these things in the past and rescued his people and provided for them and protected them, then shouldn't they have brought him something better? And the answer, of course, is yes, they should have. But they didn't. God's desire, his his purpose in the universe is that he would be known And not just in some abstract way, not just a a vague knowledge of who God is, but his desire is that he be worshipped and glorified and recognized as the great king that he is. So in order for this verb tense to change, in verse 14, in order for it to say, I am a great king and I am feared among the nations, the people's hearts have to change. Do you see that connection? In order for God to be made to look great among the nations, God's people must worship him rightly. I was just thinking, Paul had a similar desire in Philippians 1 when he says, it's my earnest desire and eager expectation that now, as always, Christ would be magnified in my life. Remember that word? Magnified in my life. Same thing going on here in Malachi 1. That God's desire, like Paul's, was that his name be known among the peoples. Why? Why is it such a big deal that God's reputation be known outside of the covenant community of Israel? Because of what he told Abraham. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? That through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God is not after a small, limited people. He is after a global church. People from every tribe and tongue and nation that will worship him with one voice and magnify him for his power. 
and his glory and his might. And it starts with the people of God. And that is what's going on here. His people in Malachi 1 missed it. And you know what? God's desire hasn't changed at all. From 500 BC to 2023, nothing has changed. God's desire is that through his people, he be magnified to the world. So we could ask the question, couldn't we? How do we do that now as a church? We don't sacrifice animals, praise God. They don't even want us to spill grape juice on the carpet. I can't imagine what blood would do. Praise God for the sacrifice of Jesus. But now we still have obligation to worship him rightly. Sure, we don't slaughter animals, but do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12? Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. You and me are the sacrifice. We are what is brought to the Lord. So if that's the case, does your life magnify God? Are you bringing an acceptable offering to the Lord? Or do you bring what is left over? Now we could apply this a hundred ways. But I just want you to think about that question. If you are the sacrifice, if your life is what is brought to the Lord in worship as your spiritual worship, like Paul says, then is your life pleasing to God? Do you bring the best to God in your time management? Or does he get the leftovers? Do you prioritize him in the stewardship of your financial resources? Do you invest in the church and the people of God? Or is that just, well, if I have time when I'm done with everything else that's important, I'll get to that. Does your life demonstrate the worth of God? And believe you me, people are watching. When you declare yourself to be a follower of Christ, when you are identified as a Christian, when your name changes, then people pay attention. So if people find out you're a Christian, what are they going to associate that with? Names mean something, right? Names are a means of association. So what do people see when they look at your life? Now don't hear me say that and say you better just look right on the outside. Remember we already established that's not the point. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the hands do, the feet walk, the sacrifice is given. If your heart has not been changed by the gospel of Jesus and you have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ and your heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh put in, you have no hope of being pleasing to God. You're in the same boat as these people were. But praise be to God that through the freeness of salvation that Chris talked about, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved and you can be an offering pleasing to God. His goal is to be glorified in all the world. We sing a song called Our Great God. And the last verse of that song is so good. And it says, You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name in me. 
And I so desire that that be your prayer this morning. God requires acceptable worship. And if your aim is to glorify him with your life, you will be pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, we confess that oftentimes our humanity, our our sin, our desires are not in a line with what you would have. And Father, I just personally confess my sin of not prioritizing my life in the way that I should. And I'm sorry, Lord. But we don't trust in our own strength. We don't trust in our ability to clean ourselves up before you, God. We trust in you. And so if our lives are to be a pleasing sacrifice to you, God, wash us clean. Change our hearts. Help us to bring the best that we have to you because we understand you are the great king and you are worthy of all of our praise. So would you do this, Father? Come now and press this word into our hearts. Help us to understand your desire to be known in the world and help us to live our lives by your strength in a way that pleases you. We have no hope of pleasing you apart from your spirit. So God, work in us through your word, through your spirit. Conform us into the image of Jesus so that the sacrifice we bring to you is acceptable in your sight. It's reminded of the psalmist who says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the things that produce all of our external actions, God, would these be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. So we thank you, Lord, for this word and pray that you would help us to live our lives dependent upon your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.